It is ironic to call Good Friday good. The events on Good Friday, they weren't good in and of themselves. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is one of the most heinous events of all time. So why do we call it good? We call it good because paradox and irony are at the heart of the Christian gospel. Jesus was the promised savior. He was the light of the world. He was the one who had already granted resurrection life to Lazarus and into dead Lazarus. He, he promised, Jesus did, to be the fount of eternal living water who would quench our constant thirst. And yet this one was nailed to the cross. Only in the mystery of God's holiness and from the wisdom of the Trinity can we call these events good. How ironic it is that we celebrate Jesus' birth, but we revel, absolutely revel in his death. Paul says this in Galatians. He says, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. The crucifixion of Jesus was supposed to snuff out Jesus. Before Jesus' crucifixion, we have no record of any person named who was crucified. There were thousands and thousands of people before Jesus who were crucified in this most torturous way of death by the Romans. It was Rome's way of condemning people from existence, snuffing them out totally. But Paul says that he hopes to never boast in anything but this. Why should we boast in the cross of Christ? And why should we call it good? We call it good in faith. In faith of what took place at the cross of Calvary. Tonight, I want us to take more, a closer look at the mock coronation of Jesus leading up to the cross. In the irony of this mock coronation, I think we will discover that what the world meant as evil, God turned to good. What was meant to shame Jesus, even what was meant to erase him from history, ended up elevating him to become the name above all names. It ended up being his glory. So I'll read the account of the mock coronation and then make some comments on a few things that I see in these accounts. In Matthew 27, some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment 
They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they grabbed the stick and they struck him on the head with it. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes again. Then they led him away to be crucified. John, in his account, gives a couple of other details. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, look, here is the man. And when they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him. Crucify him. Take him yourselves and crucify him. Pilate said, I find him not guilty. Oh, the irony. Not guilty and yet condemned. Condemned and yet it's beautiful. First, I want us to look at a crimson robe, the crimson robe the robe that was put around Jesus. Our clothes signify a lot about us. Think about it. The Son of God, pure light, chose to humble himself to the form of a human and therefore needed to be clothed. No doubt Jesus' normal garb would have accurately presented his humble state. He was a peasant from peasants. He may as well have been from nowhere, even though he was the one who created everywhere. But now, those who think they are from somewhere make a mockery of Jesus by adorning him with sarcastic robes. The soldiers would have worn clothes that gave them the authority of Rome. Uniforms unify. We have no personal account of the soldiers, but we don't need any. They are the nameless accusers. In ignorance, they pass along arrogance granted to them by the power of Rome. Empires have a way of stealing the imagination and agency of its people. And so, as they place this mocking robe around Jesus, they did not know how accurate they were to do so. This Jesus would bear their mockery and not utter a word in defense. But he would instead clothe insolent mockers like you and I with righteousness. Perhaps the Apostle Paul was thinking about Jesus being adorned with shame when he wrote these words in Ephesians 4, clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This royal robe may have given the soldiers a few laughs, but laughter fades the soldiers eventually would have to face the truth of what they had so easily mocked. In Matthew 27, after the crucifixion, 
The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, this man truly was the Son of God. In retrospect, the soldiers saw the deep irony of their mockery. They had been right to adorn him with a scarlet robe. This might strike you this evening. What you once mocked, or maybe even do now, may indeed be the truth that you need to accept. You might feel ashamed that you've talked and lived according to a truth that you're coming to realize is no truth at all. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. Next, we look at the crown of thorns that are placed on Jesus' head. Thorns and thistles take no time to find. They will find you, I've come to find out. Tough, stubborn, and apparently needing very little to survive, most of humanity has had to work to avoid or suppress thorny webs. So the soldiers reached easily for what earth readily provides. They reached for the fruit of man's original rebellion. They grasped it, and they hastily twisted it, and those gnarls they shoved in a bramble onto his head. Genesis 3, God is talking to the man and woman after they have sinned, and he's pronouncing his judgment upon them. And he turns to the man and said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. In order to mock Jesus. They harvested the fruit of the curse and shoved it on the head of him who envisioned the cosmos. It seems to me that sons and daughters of the curse find that they cannot believe that the curse could ever be undone, and so they shame those who attempt to bring hope. Ironically, their jeers, Hail, King! and their shabby crown of thorns were truthful. He would undo the curse. On that tree of Calvary, he would absorb all of our rebellion, all of the evil of the cosmos, and all of the sin upon himself, and then he would breathe out life. Life that looks like forgiveness and wholeness and hope and honor. Thorns will be turned into strawberry vines and mocking soldiers will be turned into worshiping followers. 
The mocking soldiers, in their ignorance and arrogance, inadvertently fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture and pointed to the true identity of Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews. And yet, even as they mocked him, Jesus willingly, silently endured pain and shame in order to fulfill his mission to redeem and restore humanity to God. Our final reflection on the condemning crowd. Take a closer look at the crowd and their reaction to the mock coronation. For if you and I are anyone, if we are anyone in these accounts, we are the crowd. The crowd can stand at some distance to these events. The crowd can hide their individual thoughts amongst the pulsing momentum of the crowd. Crucify him. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him. Matthew tells us that the mob roared even louder, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Throughout history and currently, the crowd voices an opinion more heinous than the individual. Lost in the anonymity of the crowd, individuals lose their agency, their reason, and they go with the flow. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Even if that flow is flippant and thoughtless rejection, or even if the crowd echoes only small promises of man-made peace, or even if the crowd just gives impulses of ignorance, even if the crowd does that, we over and over again are susceptible to be drawn in to the crowd, which says, our way, our way. We know what's best. We know what's best. Crucify him. Crucify him. Put him to death. Put him out of our minds. There's no hope in him. King of the Jews. But there is another crowd. One that you and I are invited into. It is a crowd of witnesses that have lived by gritty, sacrificial faith. These are those who are redeemed by the cross and so able to live out the cross. Paul says, I boast in Christ and him crucified. As we call ourselves Christians, we are calling ourselves those of the cross, those who are redeemed by the cross, those who know the way of the cross, those who understand what love 
really is. It is Christ and him crucified. Greater man has no man than he, Jesus referring to himself, who lays down his life for his friends. Even more profound, he who lays down his life for his enemies. Paul says at one time you and I were at enmity with God, that we were opposed in every way to God. Our lives, our motives, our actions, all of them saying to God, you are our enemy, but that great enemy that we call God has come close to us and has died so that we might pass through and become what Jesus calls us, very friends of God. However, it requires for us to first wrestle with our first enemy, and our first enemy is always God because he calls us into account. And if there's anything that the cross teaches us, it teaches us that we are so indebted, we are so lost, we are so sinful, we are so broken that the world needed a savior, and the profound way that God chose to save you and I is through the cross. We would have rather had Caesar save us with his might and his power so we could align ourselves with some sort of human gravitas. We would have preferred that. If it was up to you and I, we would have chosen that, which is probably exactly why God came in the opposite way. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are different than your ways. It will not be through might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And so we're invited into this crowd. In Hebrews, it's not on the screen the writer is giving an account of these, the crowd that you and I are invited into. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. Wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something in better in mind for us. So they would not reach perfection without us. And the writer's inviting us into that crowd. Into that chant. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. There is no God like you, you the suffering God, you the God who came in weakness and that weakness became power to redeem the whole world, the whole cosmos and you and I. In Revelation, John is seeing the vision and there's this accommodation to that crowd that you and I are invited to be a part of. 
And he says, and they have defeated him, Satan, the accuser, the devil, the liar. They have defeated him. Wow. By the blood of the lamb poured out on the cross of Calvary for the forgiveness of sins, poured out generously and freely so that all might come and drink deeply and be brought into relationship with God, brought into what is ultimately true. They have overcome by the blood blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. The day God died is the day that death lost its sting, is the day that death had its final examination and the grade given to it was F for fail. The day that God died is the day that you and I were given free access. The day that God died is what happened in irony and parody so that we might see what is ultimately true, that God is finally and totally good. And he's finally and totally pure and righteous. And we are finally and totally Desperate without him. The suffering God invites you and I to be a part of that crowd who would witness and attest to him. It is the throng around heaven's throne worshiping him. It is the gathering of the ragtag faithful who refuse to be beaten into despair by the paltry lies of status quo. On this Good Friday, let's you and I choose to be a part of that crowd. There's no one anonymous in that crowd. Rather, we are known Rather, we are seen. He who formed you in your mother's womb and knows the amount of hairs that are on your head. He, as we sang, who left the 99 to find the one. In this crowd, there is none anonymous, but rather we are all affirmed and brought in by the blood of Jesus to be part of his eternal family this eternal crowd of witnesses. In this family, we are named. In this family, we are ultimately loved. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And he breathed his last. Richard Newhouse on his reflections on that phrase, it is finished. He says, it is finished, but it is not over. God remains at work making us, his creatures, divine. Being brought into his image and likeness. And so it is appropriate that every year on Good Friday, we reflect on this suffering king 
who accomplished all that there was to accomplish in the cross so that we might be finished in him, made complete in him, being made perfect in him. So what do we do? My encouragement to you is to trust the foolishness of God, which is wiser than the best wisdom of mankind. What do we do? We allow the painful story of the mock coronation and the crucifixion to tell us the truth about the world, that we are desperately sinful and we need a savior. What do we do? We boast in Christ in him crucified. We become people of the cross. Not just a person of the cross, but a people gathered together only the cross of Calvary. We bend our knee. We affirm his lordship. We receive of his sustenance so that we may not live, love our lives so much that we are not willing to die, but rather that we would love Christ so much that we would be willing to die for him, to die in him, to be found in him. And as we are celebrating two days from now, to finally be resurrected in body, to live and reign with him. But it starts now. And it is fully experienced and expressed in the cross of Christ. I will not boast in anything other than the cross of Christ.